Over the last few months, we've been looking at the kingdom of God. We had a little interlude in October where we focused on, on bringing that kingdom into our communities as we are sent. But before that and after that, we've been looking at some of the parables of the kingdom. Jesus often begins his uh, parables, the kingdom of heaven is like. And so I'm going to invite you to turn to one of those parables. It's Matthew 20, page 1529 in your pew Bibles. Matthew chapter 20. We talked uh, early on uh, back in September when we looked at the parable of the sower or the four soils that Jesus will often use parables that other rabbis were telling as well. It's just a matter of, of the twist that he gave to them. And so we saw, for example, the parable of the four soils or the sower was a, a type of parable called the parable of four types of disciples. And then we saw last week in the parable of the Good Samaritan that he often the, they would often tell a story about a group of three uh, different people, a priest, a Levite, and usually an Israelite, a common layman. In this case, Jesus changes the end of the parable to a good Samaritan who becomes the hero of that particular story. Well, we're going to look at another parable that's very similar to some parables that uh, were told by other rabbis as well. But again, it's all about what does Jesus do with that? What's the point he's trying to make? One of the things you find out in parables, and I, th I think we found this out last week, is that Jesus often tells parables to provoke us, to provoke the people around him that he's telling the parable to. And this is indeed one of those provoking parables. So let's look at it. Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard, he agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came and each received a denarius, when those, who came who were, when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I wanted to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. We'll conclude our reading there. Would you join me in prayer? Holy Spirit, as we come once again to one of Jesus' teachings, you inspired Matthew to be able to record this. 
not only for the benefit of those who originally heard Jesus and his early followers, but for us. So even as you inspired those, inspired Matthew and others to write your word, we pray that you would continue to inspire us to understand it and to be able to live it out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Philip Yancey, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, a a great book, tells a story. I'm going to read it. It's a few paragraphs long. It said, I participated in a lively discussion on the topic of forgiveness the week Jeffrey Dahmer died in prison. Dahmer, a masked murderer, had abused and killed 17 young men cannibalizing them and storing body parts in his refrigerator. His arrest caused a shakeup in the Milwaukee Police Department when it became known that the officers had ignored the desperate pleas of a Vietnamese teenager who tried to escape by running naked and bleeding from Dahmer's apartment. That boy, too, became Dahmer's victim, one of 11 corpses found in his apartment. In November of 1994, Dahmer himself was murdered beaten to death with a broom handle wielded by a fellow prisoner. Television news reports that day included interviews with the grieving relatives of Dahmer's victims, most of whom said they regretted Dahmer's murder only because it ended his life too soon. He should have had to suffer by being forced to live longer and think about the terrible things he had done. One network showed a television program taped a few weeks before Dahmer's death. The interview at interviewer asked him how could he possibly do the things he had been convicted of. At that time, he didn't believe in God, Dahmer said, and so he felt accountable to no one. He began with petty crimes, experimented with small acts of cruelty, and then just kept going further and further. Nothing restrained him. Dahmer then told of his recent religious conversion. He'd been baptized in the prison whirlpool, and was spending all his time reading religious material given him by a local Church of Christ pastor. The camera switched to an interview with a prison chaplain, who affirmed that Dahmer had indeed repented and was now one of his most faithful worshipers. The discussion in my small group tended to divide between those who had watched only the news programs on Dahmer's death and those who had also watched the interview with Dahmer. The former group saw Dahmer as a monster. In any reports of a jailhouse conversion, they dismissed out of hand. The relatives' anguished faces had made a deep impression. One person said candidly, Crimes that bad can never be forgiven. He couldn't be sincere. Those who had seen the interview with Dahmer were not so sure. They agreed that crimes are heinous beyond belief, yet he seemed contrite. Humble even. The conversation turned to the question, is anyone ever beyond forgiveness? No one left the evening feeling entirely comfortable with the answers. How do you feel about it? Especially some of us who grew up and and remember those stories. Well, Jesus tells a story that elicits similar mixed emotions. This is perhaps one of the most puzzling of Jesus' parables, not because its meaning isn't clear, but because we have a problem with the fairness or unfairness of it. 
A landowner hires workers at 6 a.m. to work in his vineyard, and then he goes back to the marketplace at 9, at noon, at 3 p.m. and 5 p.m. and hires more. When pay time comes at the end of the day, so even though some work 12 hours, others 9 or 6 or 3 or only 1, all are paid a full day's wage. While most of them are happy, the 12-hour workers see this as unfair. What do you think? Was it unfair to the 12-hour workers? You know, some of the other rabbis told parables very similar to this one, but with a different ending. In their parables, the men who worked longer received greater wages. Jesus is obviously making quite a different point here. Well, let's look at some of the cultural facts behind the story. First, the setting is harvest time. The day would have run from about from sunrise to sunset, which would have been about 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Because it's harvest, the landowner is looking to get out his crop soon, perhaps in a day or so. Grapes needed a certain moisture and sugar content to be their best. So time was of the essence. The workers are all unemployed. They're at the marketplace waiting for someone to hire them so that they could provide for their family's needs. Unlike today, when we think of work as a right, then it was considered a privilege to be able to earn money. So the landowner was actually doing a favor by hiring them. Well, when he hired the first shift at 6 a.m., it was, upon the, it was for the agreed-upon wage of one denarius. Now, understand that that was a very fair wage. In fact, it was a very good wage. It was about what a Roman soldier would have earned for a day, probably a lot more than they would have gotten in anyone else's fields. Very generous wage. But as the day went on, the landowner gauged his need for more workers to get the job done. It was not at all unusual in that society to hire fresh workers later in the day who could bring more energy and more enthusiasm. He promised the later workers only that they would receive a fair wage. A fair wage. Apparently, the landowner had built up a reputation in the community that he would be fair. Well, the paychecks came at the end of the day when the hired workers were normally paid, and he has each one of them paid one denarius. The later workers who are paid first are delighted with his generosity. In fact, everybody is happy they've all received a full day's wage for part of a day's work. It was more than they deserved, and yet they all had the same needs at home, and this would cover their needs. But the 12-hour workers, seeing the landowner's generosity, apparently had themselves prepared for a bonus. And so they felt it unfair to be treated equally for, a full, for their full day of work. The owner's response is very instructive. The 12-hour workers got what they agreed on, a fair wage, even a generous wage. But he had decided to show the others grace and help them provide for their families. This reveals two important details. First, their, their wage was not unfair. And secondly, as the landowner says, their source of discontentment 
was envy. Envy, not unfairness. In fact, Jesus literally says, if you read it in the Greek, do you have an evil eye because I have a good eye? Or is your eye evil because my eye is good? This is a a Hebrew idiom when you hear evil eye, good eye. Evil eye stands for stinginess, greediness, and an evil eye for generosity. So he says, your problem isn't with me and my fairness. Your problem is with your own greed. Well, Jesus' only explanation of the parable comes in the rather cryptic words of verse 16. So, the last will be first, and the first will be last. What's up with that? Well, I don't know if you noticed, but if you look back at the very first verse, the very first word, in fact, of this story, it's the word for or therefore. And one of the things you learn early on in biblical interpretation in seminary is if there's a therefore, you better figure out what it's there for. And it means that it's connected to something that has just come. It's connected to something that has just been talked about, the previous teaching. So look at the previous verse, verse 19, verse 30. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. The very same thing Jesus just says. So he's tying directly into that. So what happened before this? Well, it's the story of the rich young ruler, the rich young man who came to Jesus and wanted to know how to inherit eternal life. And Jesus says, well, follow the commandments. Now I've done that. Well, if you really want to have eternal life, follow me. And to do that, you need to get rid of your wealth because that's getting in your way. And the, the rich young man couldn't do that. And so he goes away. And then all of a sudden, Peter, you got to love him, has this bright idea. Hey, wait a minute. We did what he didn't do. We left everything to follow you. Now, it was good that it would have been good for Peter to stop there, but Peter doesn't stop very quickly. He says, So what's in it for us? And Jesus says, Well, there's a lot of things that will be in it for you, but remember, Peter, remember, disciples, those who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And then he tells this parable. And this parable is meant directly toward Peter and the disciples to explain what Jesus means. What does that mean? The first will be last and the last will be first. What's he trying to explain to his disciples? Well, it has to do with the difference between a merit system and a grace system. Contrary to popular belief, Judaism in the first century was not a merit system. That is, accumulating good deeds to convert into rewards before God. Most Jews would never have believed that. Most Jews believed in grace. In fact, you even see it in some of uh, the parables of the rabbis. I said earlier, there are some rabbis that told this parable like Jesus did, but they had a different message. But many of the rabbis told the parable a lot like Jesus did. Let me read one of those. It's my, by the rabbi of my favorite name, Rabbi Haya. I love that. I think even him is the Kung Fu Panda or something. 
In uh, the Simachot of Rabbi Hayah, he says, How do the righteous enter this world? In love. They uphold the world by their good deeds. How do they depart from this world? In love. And then he quotes another rabbi. Rabbi Simeon, Simeon ben Eliezer used to tell a parable. To what may the matter be compared? To a king who hired two laborers. One worked all day, and he gave him a dinar. The other worked one hour, and he gave him a dinar. Which of them was favored? Was it not he that worked only one hour, and to whom the king gave a dinar? Thus Moses, our teacher, served Israel 120 years, and Samuel, 52 years. But both of them are considered equal before the omnipresent, as it is said. Then the Lord said to me, though Moses and Samuel stood before me. That's kind of the way the rabbis do it, but you get the idea and the gist of it is the same thing. There's there's an, maybe what seems to be an inequality or an unfairness. Moses served 120 years. Samuel only 52, but they're equal in God's sight. So that's the way a lot of Israel thought in Jesus' day. Yet what was taught in Israel was like today, not always practiced in Israel. And so what we get is Jesus having to confront people who are going the wrong direction confronting Pharisees who had gone the wrong way with this and started to actually teach about a works righteousness, about a merit system. Because you see, human nature, sinful nature, makes us think we have to earn things. When I was growing up, the neighbors across the street had children about our age, and and the children had a chart on their bedroom door. And it was a chart of merits and demerits. And if they did something good, merit was checked off. If they did something bad, a demerit was checked off. And their behavior would determine their allowance, their rights and privileges within the family. Kind of blew my mind as a kid, and I was glad that my parents didn't have that. Well, perhaps the disciples are thinking along those lines. That that they had been with Jesus a long time. That they had done more. Then even, these, even if the rich young man had come and joined them, they had done more. So Jesus tells a story in which those who complain do so on the basis, we did more. We did more. And Jesus says, doing is irrelevant. Doing is irrelevant. It doesn't matter what you do. He teaches that God's kingdom operates on a different system. Grace. There's nothing we can do to earn our way into God's kingdom. Jesus does it for us. And no matter how much we think we did for God, there's equality at the cross. It's a gift based on grace. If we, like the disciples, identify with those 12-hour workers and are scandalized by the seeming unfairness of this story, then we miss the story's point, which is, as Philip Yancey says, that God dispenses gifts, not wages. None of us gets paid according to merit. For none of us comes close to satisfying God's requirements for a perfect life. If paid on the basis of fairness we would all end up in hell. 
if paid on the basis of fairness, all of us would end up in hell. Jesus purposely makes this a story that provokes us. Think about it. Did he have to have the last workers paid first? If he had just paid the 12-hour workers first and they went on their way, there wouldn't have been an issue. No, Jesus tells this story to provoke us to show us the radical nature of God's grace. Well, that issue of unfairness comes to a head when the world's way of thinking clashes with God's way of thinking. Where might these systems clash for us today? Someone's death row conversion like Jeffrey Dahmer or deathbed conversion? Maybe it shows up in a lack of enthusiasm for outreach. New converts in the church, because do we really want to deal with those folks and do we really want them joining us? Or does it show up in writing people off who we believe are just too far gone, even though they might be 11th hour workers? Who have we written off as being outside of God's grace? outside of his kingdom. Do we live by the merit system? Or perhaps grace for us, but merit for everybody else? Well, what can we learn from Jesus' parable? Let me suggest four things, four take-home points for us. One, our works and time served are irrelevant to the kingdom economy. Our works and time served are irrelevant to the kingdom economy. There are no pay scales based on seniority, work quality, or work quantity. Second, grace is a gift offered by a gracious God. We accept the gift, trusting God will come through for us. And he has in Jesus Christ. Third, God has the right Don't I have the right, asks the the landowner. God has the right, because he's the king of the kingdom, to operate by grace. He doesn't have to welcome any of us into the kingdom, because we're all undeserving. So the kingdom is just as much a gift to longtime believers as it is to new converts. And finally, we need to ask, are we envious of God's generosity and grace, sort of like Jonah was over the conversion of Nineveh? Are we hoarding his grace to ourselves or are we sharing it with others that they too may know the generous grace of our God? Has Jesus provoked us with this parable? Are we learning the lessons of the radical nature of God's grace? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your amazing grace. And quite frankly, we often take it for granted until we see it active in somebody else's life. And then sometimes we stand in awe, and other times we say, well, no, we did more than them. Help us to totally buy into the grace system of your kingdom and not to be drawn into that merit system that 
seems to work so well in our secular world. We pray then that out of this motivation that we have been so graciously dealt with that all of us are in a sense like 11th hour workers. None of us has gotten what we deserve. We have gotten much more that out of our gratitude to you that we would seek to share that with others that they might come to know you and that they might come to know the radical nature of your grace and the radical nature of your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond by singing the song Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, and it's uh, number 691 in the Lift Up Your Hearts, but also the five stanzas will be on your screen. Let's stand as we sing.